0: Welcome to the Plexus Podcast. Today, Brad Johnson and J.P. Novin are joined by Chris Plunkett, President of Iowa Wesleyan University. Welcome to the Plexus Podcast series. Uh, I'm your host, Brad Johnson, and I'm here with J.P. Novin. And today we are with President Chris Plunkett of Iowa Wesleyan University. How are you today?
1: I'm very well. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. We're very happy to have you. So let's go ahead and and take a walk back in time, walk you through your background a little bit, and and talk to us about your journey, journey that has led you now to the presidency at Iowa Wesleyan, the first female president at the institution, Um, and maybe we start with your mentors. Sure. Who are your your mentors?
1: You know, it's interesting because I think sometimes you'll come across people who, when they're asked that question, they often will have... One person, sort of a key person who jumped out and filled in a gap in their life, maybe when they were in high school or college. For me, it's been it's been kind of different. I mean, uh, maybe cliche, but I always do refer back to my mom, who was a teacher. She was a middle school science and math teacher, and she always really taught me there were just no boundaries in what I could do and no gender barriers to what I could do. So that was a presence throughout my entire life. But I would really say my mentors have accumulated over many years of work, and some of them have been people that I've worked for. Um, and I, you know, I pick up snippets of information. An example, which is a very tiny example, is uh, a boss that I once had decades ago who used to say, you know, anytime there's a significant decision that needs to be made, you need to sleep on it. And it was just a small piece of advice, but in observing how he executed his decision making, it made a lot of sense that, you know, you shouldn't be leaping into a significant decision on the spur of the moment. And I've always carried that as part of my my way of thinking through difficult or challenging or significant decisions. Um, So I've had mentors like that. But in all honesty, I would say the most significant mentors I've had have been people who work for me because I have learned so many lessons in leadership, how to be a better leader, how to be a better listener, how to be flexible, how to allow the people that work for me to grow in their careers and and sort of be a mentor to them. But in doing so, they're, they're mentoring me. So really, honestly, the people that I've worked for me and then right now I have the most amazing team of cabinet colleagues that I could ever imagine, much smarter than me, much more capable than me. And I learn from them every single day, um, the way that they go about their work, um, the ideas that they have. um, And I think we all push each other to be better.
0: Well, and so it's it's a very competitive market out there. You know you came in in twenty nineteen, so there's been a there's been a lot, you know, to deal with and challenges. Can you talk to me about how does Iowa Wesleyan compete and grow?
1: yep, and to to back up a little, um, I did step into the presidency in twenty nineteen, but as part of that background, I was the CFO here starting in 2015. And so I came into the presidency with four years of a really deep understanding of the financial challenges that we were facing and the directions that we were going and some ideas about how that needed to shift. So I think what I would say about the saturated market is one of the things we're really proud of at Iowa Wesleyan is that we are We consider ourselves really a little bit at the forefront of planning ahead for demographic shifts. We've been watching the population predictions for years. We've been watching what's happening in higher ed landscape across the country. We reached, uh, as you probably know, we reached a pretty critical financial challenge um, position around 2018. It was actually early November of 2018, our board of trustees Announced that we might be closing, and we uh, we put that out there, pretty uh, pretty brave step to publicly put that announcement out there. And what happened is our community rallied and said, "We are a small rural part of this country. This college cannot go away. It's a keystone of the community, and we have to figure out a way to move forward." And so we raised significant funds that gave us a little bit of a, a sort of a pathway forward. And then what we did, as you may know, is we leaped into this process of forming a partnership. Uh, and where we have ended up with that is a pretty innovative place. We are partnered with a regional community college, Southeastern Community College, in a pretty uh, unique arrangement. we It's not just a matter of some articulation agreements between us. We actually formed a standalone nonprofit organization. It's called the Southeast Iowa Higher Education Alliance. And through that, You have this two-year vocationally focused, publicly funded community college and a four-year liberal arts university doing a a very intensive, intentional set of initiatives. And I think what's made us able to compete, number one, we are very small. Um, At our low point during the most challenging times, we actually hit uh, 358 undergraduate students. This year we're at 700, excuse me, 670 undergraduates, um, a total of 830 something of head count in terms of graduate students included. And I think I think the niche that we now occupy, uh, a lot of students and prospective families have taken note of that. And I think that's, that's what's made us competitive. You pointed out, this has been a very challenging time. Uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic still, um, during these past two years, which one might argue were about the most challenging you can imagine with COVID, our enrollment went up 25%. And as you probably know, the national average for the same two years was a 6% decline. Um, so we've taken uh, significant steps. We, we switched from the NCAA Division III to NAIA. That provided a huge boost to our athletic enrollment. We launched a student success center and devoted significant resources to staffing up to eight eight employees who are entirely devoted to supporting students who are entering the university and how they can be successful. Um, And to tie in, just to give context to that, 50% of our students are first generation students, 50% are ethnically and uh, racially diverse, and 65 to 70% are low income. And so we have begun to develop um, a very identifiable set of initiatives and programs that serve these students. Our retention rates have taken a tremendous step forward. Um, Our enrollment has gone up. And we're also working throughout the region on economic development in, in rural communities around us. And that's another source. Again, you ask, how do we find students in this saturated market? We're going into low-income and uh, economically challenged communities in our region and getting in front of students who otherwise might not even be aware of their options and many of them as you probably know in a rural region would like to stay close to home but would like to improve their lives so when we can say you have an option here of a two-year community college you can then transfer to Iowa Wesleyan and complete a nursing degree criminal justice degree, a teacher education degree. Um, so I think the saturated market for us, um, I don't think it's saturated here because we are surrounded with communities that have real challenges with workforce development. And we just need to get in front of these young people and um, help them understand what their options are.
0: So online is a part of your, uh, your offerings as well. Um, I know that um, a large percentage. In fact, I believe all graduates are online and there's a good percentage of undergraduates that are online too. Um, how do you how do you differentiate between recruiting an adult learner versus a traditional age student? And then the second question to that, you had mentioned retention rates. Um, what steps are you taking to ensure persistence through to graduation?
1: Yes, so uh, in terms of your first question and recruiting, I think a lot of the recruiting work for our online program is as you pointed out with an older adult market. Um, And again, because we're sitting in a region where there are quite a lot of people who have at some point in their life possibly begun a degree and then got sidetracked and never completed it. We have a pretty ready market. And I would say the challenges we've had with our online program have been getting uh, the program built up internally in terms of staffing and leadership. Uh, and then really starting to work with regional businesses and communities and schools. Um, An example on that in terms of of recruiting adult students is the community college has a very strong nursing program. They graduate, I think, upwards of 50 nursing students every year, many of whom pretty much walk across the street to the regional health center and get good-paying, you know, entry-level, but good-paying nursing jobs. Um, The hospitals have come to us and said that's wonderful because there's a shortage of nurses, but they said we also need nurses with advanced degrees so that they can become directors and leaders and managers in our hospitals. And so that's an opportunity. You have these nurses who don't want to give up their jobs, they want to keep working, but they also would like to get a bachelor's or a master's degree we can provide that opportunity through an online arrangement or a hybrid, you know, where there's some face-to-face labs, um, but some, some online classes. So I think we have a lot of creative ways that we reach out. In terms of persistence, uh, uh, several years ago, I'm trying to remember when it was, it must've been around 2015, the CIC invited us to be, uh, they accepted us into their program, it's called the Persistence and Completion Academy. And they put you through a one-year program as a university, all of the the institutions that are selected, and helping you walk through a process for improving your activities in that area. So we have had for quite a few years a robust persistence and completion council on our um, university campus. It consists of probably more than 15 members on that committee that are from all, all arms of the university. And I think that the work that that group does is probably one of the biggest reasons for our enrollment growth and retention. We are small enough that we can quite literally have our hands on every single student if, that needs support. Small example, we have 140 football players this year. That's been part of our enrollment growth. 50 of those would be varsity, 50 would be varsity reserves that leaves about 40 who may not necessarily be completely happy with their athletic experience. They're probably not gonna get to play that much. So in our persistence and completion council, we can get a list of names from our coaches and who will say, these are the students that we think may be at risk of leaving. In that group of 15 or so people, Somebody will know each of those students and they'll say, I I know that student and I know that he sings in the choral group, maybe we can get him engaged more in musical activities. Um, I know that student, maybe he can do some football coaching with the YMCA in one of our local communities. And so the the benefit of our size is that we can take such an incredibly personal approach to each student, same thing that persistence and completion council will review. Students who have unpaid bills, how can we reach out to that family and explain a process of setting up a payment plan? Um, So we literally just work individually with students and have seen remarkable success with that.
0: Mm -hmm. And so where do you want to be? You mentioned that you're at 670 undergraduate students. What's your goal?
1: Our goal for undergraduates is Um, 1,000. The college, I think, hit its high point in enrollments back in the 1960s just under a thousand, I think it was around 960. Uh, It then had a long period of years where it kind of waffled around the six and seven hundreds. And then when we switched from the NAIA to the NCAA division three in 2011, um, I think that decision, one of the things that was not addressed in advance is the impact it would have on, on current enrollment. And we dropped, that's when we dropped very rapidly in the course of about three years, we dropped down to 350 some undergraduates. And we've been climbing out of that spot ever since. So we're pretty pleased with where we are right now. Um, the number of transfer students from the community college has gone way up. Uh, we used to just get a handful of them. We got. I think about 16 this fall, we have another dozen or so on the line for the spring, and then for next fall we expect to gradually get up to closer to 50 transfer students a year. So, Mm -hmm.
0: and you have a large percentage of out of state students is that right.
1: We do, although that's been changing with the recent work we're doing that I've just been talking about when I arrived here in 2015. I believe we had fewer than 50 Iowa students, which is kind of interesting for a university that's located in Iowa. Most of our students then were Illinois, Missouri, um, you know, kind of regional, but not Iowa. Our athletic program now attracts quite a lot of students from um, Texas, Florida, really all around the country. But our number of Iowa students has gone well up into the over, you know, over 100 students. We also have one hundred and ten or so international students, um, But the remarkable thing that makes us stand out with that is they are from thirty five countries. We're not talking about a, a large you know cohort of students from one or two countries. So we've been named for repeatedly for the last several years the most diverse campus in Iowa.
0: And so you know, talk to us a little bit more. You've shared, great stories about community, um, the local community, and that partnership that you have. You know, and oftentimes we find that institutions survive and just as the cities that they are in, you know, they really go hand in hand and work very closely together. So, you know, you in part are the president of an institution, but you also play a little bit of a role of a mayor of the city potentially. Yep. Can you talk to us about that community relationship and how you've expanded that?
1: Yes, and I'm, this is where you've touched on something that's it's both relatively new to me, and it's probably the thing I am most excited about right now because what happened with this is we've been working on our new strategic plan, which we uh, we really live by our strategic plan here. We it very seriously. It's not something we shelve and ignore. So we've been working on a new one, And as part of that process, we hold community meetings outside the university to find out what people who live in our region want to see in in what we call their university, you know, what what does the community want. And so often those meetings consist of um, maybe a member of our Board of Trustees will invite a group of friends and neighbors to their house, and we'll meet with them and talk about the university. Well, in one uh, recent meeting that was held in one of Iowa's probably highest poverty communities, a very economically depressed region, um, a lot of drug use, uh, a lot of um, domestic abuse, child abuse, a very, very struggling community. We held a meeting there, but instead of being a group of friends and neighbors of anyone, it was a really a classic community organized meeting of the movers and shakers in that community. It was the head of the school system, the head of the YMCA, the head of the labor union head of the library, the head of the daycare, uh, nurses, teachers, um, and it was a collection of people who are absolutely committed to figuring out how do we solve the, the economic challenges this community faces. And really the outcome of that meeting was that they quite literally begged us to come into their community and have a presence. They said the young people in this community, the word college is not even part of their narrative. It's not that they Think they can't afford it or they, you know, they have to stay on the farm. They don't even, they don't even believe it's an option. And so we're already directly working one-on-one. The YMCA said, can you bring student athletes to the YMCA a couple of times a month? Start shooting baskets with our high school kids or our younger kids, talk about college. Can you bring our kids from the YMCA onto your campus to see what a college campus looks like? The superintendent of schools said, can you come into our school and set up a program of faculty members who come in and talk about what you can do with a major in criminal justice or healthcare or teacher education. The daycare director said, I hire 18 year old college graduates for seven or $8 an hour. Can you get in front of them and tell them you could get an early childhood education degree and do so much more with your life? Because if you don't, they'll still be earning 7 or 8 dollars an hour in a daycare center 20 years from now. And so I went home from that meeting and I was awake all night. My head was just spinning with ideas and what has really clicked for us in this partnership with Southeastern Community College is what we can do not just for our own institutions but how we can help help, you know, economically support a region that is has many communities that are struggling. In addition, we just got our census results and the census results say that the fastest growing population uh, niche in Southeast Iowa is age 64 to 85. That is not, that is not good for the future. And so we're, we have extra you know, incentive to work in these communities and say, how can we keep these students in the region but get them a higher level of education? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you define student success?
1: You know, student success, I have what may be considered a little bit of an old-fashioned definition of that, which dates me maybe. I know these days so much focus on higher education is on what is your career going to be, what are you going to get a job the day you graduate, and how much will it pay? I come from that era when going to college was really about learning who you are. Um, I entered college as a music major because I played the cello and I liked it. A year later, I switched to being a German major because I had a friend from Switzerland and I thought it was cool learning how to speak German with her. A year after that, I got a job working in a bank and I got interested in business. So I I ultimately graduated with a business degree, but I can assure you, I never went to college thinking, I'm gonna go down a pathway to be a college president. It would never in a million years have crossed my mind. And so for me, student success yeah i fully understand these days the economy workplace opportunities the employment outlook is very different than it was you know 40 or 50 years ago so i understand the need to understand how you're going to get a job but to me that cannot be the only the only answer to what student success is and you know our mission statement says that we want students to have meaningful lives and careers And we really mean that that it's the life that matters and so for me student success is how do you work with other people how do you work within the community to give back Um, what do you know about your own strengths what do you love doing Um, and and how do you want to how do you want to see yourself in your relationships with community and family and globally as a global citizen uh, and so that, for me, is what matters, while obviously, at the same time, providing career support and opportunities for, you know, training towards a career.
0: Sure. Yeah. I'll tell you, relationships mean a lot.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Relationships, it's such a simple word. It's so cliche, but it means a lot. Yes. It really does.
2: Yeah.
0: So how, how do you engage uh, alumni?
1: Yep, so actually that's something that we had a little bit of a a gap in for a few years. We had a vacant alumni director position. Uh, Our advancement office did did what it could and we certainly continued to communicate with alumni and hold some events. But in the last year we have brought in a director for that program who is amazing. Um, And she. I think our homecoming this past fall was probably our, our best one in many, many years. Uh, more people came back for it than ever before. They reconnected. And then, of course, once they reconnect with each other, it reconnects them with the university. And uh, our advancement, Vice President and I, have been back on the road this year after COVID. Uh, and a lot of what we're doing is getting together with alumni to talk about what we're doing here, to talk about our growth. Um, and so, you know, I think probably a lot of what we do with alumni is is fairly typical, traditional, you know, we, we're we trying to build up our database, we keep in touch with them uh, as best we can through, you know, and again, as you guys know, in what in your work, um, it requires a lot of keeping up with what is the latest, you know, is it Facebook? Is it LinkedIn? Is it Instagram? Um, has it changed to something new? Is it Twitter? Um, and so it, it does take a lot to keep on top of that when you're a small institution, because we don't necessarily have the resources to have a specific social media expert. You know, we, have, we wear many hats here. Um, so I would say our way of keeping in touch with alumni right now is quite traditional, and yet we have a lot of energy behind it. So it's, it's working, but it, you know, we have to continue to expand that.
2: Now, Chris, it's really refreshing to hear about your student success. Uh, philosophy. um, To me, because I was a philosophy major, right? And my, my immigrant parents, they flipped over when they heard about me switching to philosophy, what are you going to do? But I think that self-awareness and I mean, I I went on to create four companies. This is, this is, this is another one that I've been involved with, but as a philosophy major, you never know what you're going to do. So I think that self-discovery it's, it's really refreshing. It's not because you just don't know. This is the time you get out of home. You, you're able to think. It is supposed to be a little fuzzy, isn't it?
1: And and absolutely. I, I, it's fascinating hearing you're a philosophy major because there are a few of those majors that back in my era, those were the most sought after employees because they were the ones who knew how to think through problems, how to continue with what we now call, of course, lifelong learning. Um, I remember when my daughter called me, she was a music major just you know, maybe a decade ago, and she called us up one day and said, I don't know whether I should stay in college or not because I feel bad. You're spending all this money on tuition and I'm majoring in music, but I'm not gonna have a career in music. And we said, that's okay. That's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. If you love music, study music and you will find a pathway forward. And interestingly, my husband, who ran a software company for many, many years, way back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, he told me that his he hired many, many software engineers. You know, he had maybe 10 of them. And he told me the vast majority of them were music and philosophy majors. Um, and in particular, this is kind of a humorous side note. In particular, they were oboe players. Oh. That is interesting. But, but you know, those connections between music and math and the, the way the brain works um, are very well known. And it doesn't mean you have to be a computer science major to go out and be a very successful computer science entrepreneur.
2: Absolutely. I often talk with our engineers. I said I can't code anything, but I could tell you what needs to get done. Yes. Okay. And <laughs> And I think our whole education in liberal arts is going to be, this comes up with a lot of university presidents because computers will be able to do a lot of the assembly work, but problem solving will remain the domain of humans. And you know, for our listeners, um, you all have a very interesting history, over 177-year history, right? Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? That's that's very fascinating. You, you, you've been around since before the Civil War.
1: We've been around. We were just talking with some visitors about this. So we're this is our 180th anniversary. We'll celebrate in February. We've been around since before Iowa was a state. And yes. so the initial name of the institution, I'm forgetting it right now, but it was something like a collegiate, you know, academy, and it didn't have the word Iowa in it at all. It later became Iowa Wesleyan University. At some point, 40 or 50 years ago, it went back to being uh, Iowa Wesleyan College. And then in 2015, we reverted again to being a university as we added some master's degrees. But, you know, we have uh, one of the things I love about Iowa Wesleyan, we have a long history of um, supporting women and international students and students of color long before. Uh, that was common. Um, we have the, the, one of our alums from the 1800s is the first woman that was accepted into the um, bar to become a lawyer in the United States, Bad Mansfield. Um, more recently, you know, more recently, Peggy Whitson uh, became the first woman commander of the space station, uh, holds the longest serving space record. Uh, she's one of our graduates Um, Roy Van Allen, who discovered the radiation belts around the Earth um, that now bear his name, the Van Allen belts, was one of our graduates. So we had our first international student from Japan in the 1800s, so um, we're pretty proud of that history. Uh, we have a building on our campus that's the longest operating academic building west of the Mississippi. You know, it goes way back into the 1800s when we were first formed. So, um, it's a it's a fascinating history. And what draws me here is the difference that we can make. Um, my my original hometown. I'm a Vermonter, and my hometown is in Middlebury, where Middlebury College is. And you're probably familiar with Middlebury College. It's one of the you know, really most um, financially well-off institutions in the country, uh, a fairly wealthy uh, population of students. And people used to ask me, you know, why don't you work at Middlebury College? You literally live right in the middle of the campus, practically. And my answer was that I just felt, for me, that I would be a cog in the wheel of a pretty well oiled machine. And and I'd much rather step in somewhere where some transformation is needed um, and where students really need some support and can change their lives.
2: And certainly I was just reading a piece yesterday on Middlebury College uh, merger with Monterey Institute of Languages in Monterey where I grew up in Santa Cruz. So uh, I I actually took a foreign language test in that institute because it, it was one of the most well-known institutes uh, after war, during World War II. A lot of uh, people got actually learned foreign language there. So interesting you mentioned Middlebury because I was just- Yeah, beginning. Middlebury,
1: um, they run a <laughs> Summer Language Institute in Middlebury and it's one of the best known ones in the country. You know, They teach, I don't know, dozens and dozens of languages all summer long.
2: It's, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. I mean, your alums are amazing. I mean, the first international student from Japan. The first woman lawyer, um, there is, uh, people probably don't know this name, but William Andrew Clark, the U.S. senator, business magnate during the 20s and uh, or late 1800s, the Central Bank of Nigeria, the yes. second <laughs> governor. You, you have some very, very important, and you also have a lot of athletes that, that have gone to the major league, um, you know, Sandy Sandberg, football player. Yep. I, I was very impressed um, about the quality and the big names that your institution has given out. Uh, now you are the first woman president. Right? I am. Uh, tell us about that, and also you're the first woman president who actually has an really an MBA path rather than a PhD education path. So, That's right. Um, Tell us about that journey, becoming a president, becoming a woman president, and 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 one that is very fiscal w- with an MBA degree. What does that mean for you on the campus?
1: Sure, yeah, I think I have a, a somewhat eclectic background. It's not a very expected one, I think. And as I said, I never, I never set out to be a college president. Um, when I finished uh, my master's degree, the first job I got, um, and I'm always, I always sort of am staggered to say this. The first job I got, and you will not believe how deadly this sounds, I was a government cost accountant for uh, a. Com- it gets worse for for a company that manufactures the gaskets that seal the doors shut on bomber aircraft. It was a it was a very specific company, um, and at that time I was in my twenties. I had my MBA. This was a, an era when an MBA for a woman was was kind of a big deal and i marched off to that job with my hair in a bun and my suit and i thought i thought i was kind of the cat's meow you know and i worked at that company for almost probably less than a year and i thought what am i doing this has this has no meaning for me i'm i'm adding up numbers for a company that makes parts on bomber airplanes it doesn't it doesn't mean anything to me and so I went on. The next thing I did is I worked for. Um, you're both too young, I bet. But um, they're the very first desktop software, uh, which ran on a pretty big computer, it what you know, it sat on your desk, but it was a giant thing. Was called VisiCalc. Oh. Visi VisiCalc was the precursor to Excel. So VisiCalc was the very first personal software that ran on people's desktops and it was rows and columns and you could put numbers in and do things with them and it was it was amazing and that's now you know now over many years has turned into what's now excel but i went to work for them and i was the person who tested all of their financial functions to make sure they worked so i was a software tester um after that i was having my children i have five children they're all grown now and lots of grandbabies but they, um, I, w- I became an independent consultant, just doing uh, some software testing for companies like Lotus that did Lotus One, Two, Three. Um, maybe that's more familiar to both of you. <laughs> um, and um, so I did independent consulting. And uh, then I ended up, uh, I made my way to be the financial director at a uh, independent secondary school. It was a 7th through 12th grade school. Um, I was the financial director there for about a dozen years um, and became, you know, not just involved in the finances, but kind of caught up in the educational scene. Um, And then from there, I went to become the CFO at a very small private college in Vermont, which has since closed, It's Burlington College, which you may have heard of. It closed five or six years ago. Um, I was the CFO there under uh, Jane Sanders, Bernie Sanders' wife was the president there. Um, I was her CFO and when she stepped down from the presidency, the board asked me to take on that role. Uh, I stayed in that role only two years. It was not a good fit for me. Um, that was a truly one of the smallest colleges in the country. It had less than a couple hundred students. Um, it was not um, academically, it, it wasn't a, a fit for me there. So I was asked to join the registry of college presidents, which you may have heard of, the registry places interim administrators in higher education kind of like the higher ed version of traveling nurses. So you, you often are asked to step into a six month or a one year interim role. And that's what, that's what landed me here in Iowa, is I was asked to come as a one year interim chief financial officer. Uh, that was seven years ago. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what happened there, but um, our, our president left in 2019 and I was asked to step into the president's position. You mentioned the MBA. I think um, you're correct that historically, that would be an unusual path. Uh, college presidents used to come up through academic ranks. You know, Typically, you'd be a department chair and a division chair and have a, a PhD. I think, increasingly, the challenges that higher ed institutions face are so much revolve around the finances. Um, not so much straight accounting, but my area of specialty is really financial analysis and data analysis, and I think that was that was the main reason that that these both of these uh, you know college and university um, moved me into the president's role because that's what was needed was a lot of analysis of um, financial position, what were we going to do about it, how are we going to grow enrollment, what do the numbers look like. I think that's increasingly common, um, that more likely you often now you see, I think finance and lawyers um, are two fields that are starting to be more common. And I think a lot of academics um, are fearful of presidencies because they they are overwhelmingly financial challenges that you have to be facing.
2: You know, I think uh, we we had a podcast with Christine Reardon of Adelphi uh, University, and she mentioned the role of a president as a combination of being a mayor and a CEO. So (laughs) I
1: would say that's actually very correct, very accurate.
2: And and I think that uh, none of those really require to have an academic degree. It, It requires a lot of soft talent, it, it requires a lot of financial um, know-how and a lot of diplomacy, uh, you know. So uh, th- that's why I kind of asked that question, because I, I do agree that what we're seeing is a the code is the commercialization of colleges during a very uh, tough fiscal time with demographic changes as far as high school students going to college with, you um, Uh, international students during COVID. There's there's a lot that colleges are facing. You you, you made a very interesting point about the role of the community. Where would Mount Pleasant be without Iowa Wesleyan?
1: I think it would be a tough situation and I can expand on that. Um, Shortly after we announced our partnership with Southeastern Community College, um, our local hospital in Mount Pleasant announced a very similar arrangement with a larger, more more financially stable hospital in Burlington, which is the same community where Southeastern Community College is. So here you had a university and a community college partnering and a smaller hospital and a larger hospital in the same two communities partnering. And I will tell you right around when we announced potentially back in 2018 that we were in, in pretty serious financial difficulties, Our local hospital was closing down its OBGYN services, and it was beginning to talk about stopping its ambulance service. So what we think right now is is pretty remarkable about Mount Pleasant is you have an example of a rural regional corner of America that two years ago was at risk of losing both its hospital and its university. And now what you have is both of those are strengthened and actually you know, showing growth beyond what is typical in those industries. And so we're very proud of that. And I would say Mount Pleasant would be a very different place um, if both the hospital and the university were gone. We do have some large employers. But without a university to provide workforce, you know, nurses for the hospitals and employees for the companies, Um, I suspect Mount Pleasant would be going down the pathway of some of these more economically challenged communities.
2: And you know, you're not alone, even the big colleges, uh, I'm sure you've heard about the uh, Claremont-Pitzer and Scripps partnerships where they actually share a location uh, for the array of majors in in Southern California, Uh, also Babson, Uh, Wesley College and Franklin Olin College, uh, they shared some engineering resources in a common place. Uh, So there's more and more of these kinds of partnerships coming out and and you see these partnerships increasing with with more institutions within Iowa.
1: I think that that's very true. An interesting story we've heard um, from some of the outside organizations we've talked to like the CIC. Mm -hmm. is there's a large number of small private colleges that are simply unwilling to acknowledge that they may be facing financial challenges or maybe need to change direction. And that's dangerous because if you don't acknowledge it, it can creep up on you pretty quickly. If you have a significant enrollment drop or something economically or financially comes apart, uh, it can be difficult to solve those problems quickly and so um i think that we understand why there is that hesitation because we have paid the price of making an announcement 3 years ago that we were on the borderline we're still paying that price you know now this year for the first time we're really seeing a significant turnaround in perceptions but we had to answer to alumni we had to we had a really difficult time with fundraising for a while because Everyone's anxious about what's happening. So we know why it is that colleges are hesitant to make those kinds of announcements. But if you don't plan ahead and enter into some of these unique partnerships, um, that can be trouble. And you mentioned some of the ones that you've, you've uh, worked with. We got a lot of our information um, extremely helpful. The executive director of the colleges of the Fenway in Boston Colleges of Fenway is a similar kind of affiliation that's existed, I wanna say for nearly 25 years. Uh, And Claire Ramsbottom, their executive director was extremely helpful in providing us with some uh, language for our bylaws. Uh, I think what, what sets us apart is that it's not only about the colleges, but it's about the economic development of the region. And that's a unique aspect that we haven't seen so much in some of these other partnerships, but we are certainly getting a lot of attention. I have been recording podcasts for the last couple of months, um, and I will be making a presentation at the National Presidents CIC Presidents Conference in Florida next month. Um, and we're we are. Ha- I am always happy to talk to other uh, institutions who want to get information about how we did this because I think it's an important direction for small colleges it's an alternative that's viable, it's a viable alternative to closing.
2: Oh, absolutely, and I think the role of colleges in rural America is also important. It has economic ramification, it has political ramification. I mean, we we had to deal with that in, in, in the Rust Belt when it came to companies closing down. I mean, there's so much cultural dependencies, I mean, one of the things that really stood out to me is the number of international students. Um, that I mean, you all are the cultural hub, uh, really, of Mount Pleasant. Because how else would anyone find out uh, from all of these hundred thirty countries that that are coming about that location? So, um, another and thing that was interesting: the Southeast Alliance. How does that work? So, so if you want to. Does it just continue? So you take two years of vocational college and then you just continue to a bachelor's degree uh, at your institution? What what is the mechanic of that?
1: Sure. So the mechanics of it um, that we've designed, if you think about traditional community college, I think what might have been common in the past is you go to your two years and towards the end of that two years, you may speak to a counselor about what am I going to do next? And maybe for your last six months, you begin to think about, do I wanna go on? Do I wanna get a job? One of the things we do is we intentionally catch these students the minute they enter the two-year college. So uh, we have a dedicated admissions counselor. She's our employee, but she resides on the campus of Southeastern Community College, kind of divides her time. So she's right there on the campus accessible. And when a student is accepted into Southeastern, those students are asked, what are your career goals and aspirations? And what are your degree plans? And if they say, well, I'm kind of interested in the criminal justice program, then they are told, okay, you can complete a two-year degree here, but guess what? You can go on to Iowa Wesleyan because they also have criminal justice and you can get a four-year degree. And with that degree, You can be a probation officer, you can be a police officer, or you can go to law school and everything in between. Same for teacher education. So we took all of our programs, many of which align. They have criminal justice, so do we. They have nursing, so do we. They have teacher education, we have business. Um, And so what we did is we aligned all those programs And we approach those students early on, they receive a double acceptance. So when you're accepted to Southeastern, you are also receiving an acceptance letter into Iowa Wesleyan for two years later. (coughs) Excuse me. So you have this pathway that's already clear. And you see, um, you see what your courses will look like. We guarantee that we'll accept all of those credits, assuming the grades are acceptable. Um, And then what we do is Southeastern provides a scholarship to every one of their graduates who goes on to Iowa Wesleyan, and we also provide a scholarship. So we've made the financial picture Clearly, one of the main competitors we've had for transfer students in the past or or four-year students has been the state universities because their tuition is, is on the surface of it, their tuition is lower. If you take discount rate into effect, that changes the picture. But we put together a package where if you average the four years, two at, at a community college and two at Iowa Wesleyan, it's very competitive with going to Iowa State, for example. And yet you can stay in your own community. You don't have to travel to the other side of Iowa to go and get your degree. Um, So that's a big piece of it, is just creating those pathways. Um, We we know that, I think nationally, I've heard something like 60 to 70% of community college students indicate when they start that they would like to eventually get a four-year degree. Only 15% succeed, so that, You were talking about the saturated market. If there's 60% of Southeastern students would like to get a bachelor's degree and only 15% are doing that, something is getting in their way. And part of the goal of our partnership is to identify that. A lot of it is wanting to do online so they can work at the same time as they take classes, but we're trying to identify other barriers and get rid of those. Um, So a lot of it just has to do again with that personal touch. Um, reaching out to them early, helping them to see what their pathway can be, that they will have jobs when they graduate right in the region, they can stay close to home. Um, And then we also have a lot of other, uh, we have shared positions, which is an expense saving. Uh, We share our Title IX and Diversity Director between the two campuses. Uh, We share a lot of student activities back and forth. So Southeastern students become familiar with our campus Um, intramural athletics, uh, those kinds of things. Um, We actually put our food service out to bid as a combined contract because the total enrollment of the two of us combined gets us better pricing. So we now have a shared food service contract. Uh, We are looking at shared security services for the campuses. And we try to develop, again, a culture of speaking of ourselves as one Technically, we're not one institution, we're not merged. We have separate leadership, separate presidents, but we speak of ourselves as one campus. Um, If you think about us, sometimes we have students that are conditionally accepted here. Uh, They may not meet our admissions requirements, but we would like them to have a chance. In the past, we might've said, we suggest that you go back home, find a local community college and take a year and see how that goes. Now what we say is we suggest you go to our other campus for a year and then you can transfer over here smoothly after one or two years. So creating that language that this is our regional education system and that it's sort of a a known factor that you're gonna go from Southeastern into Iowa Wesleyan. Of course, we're not gonna get all of those students. Some of them, we don't offer the degrees they all want and some of them will go elsewhere, but we've seen a significant increase
2: this is analogous to the minor leagues. So, Brad used to play baseball. Uh uh-huh. You know. <laughs> uh, and and totally. I, I, I would leave the, uh, our audience with this. You have very career oriented majors cybersecurity concentration, RN to BSN, masters in criminal justice, right? So, I mean, those three are three of the hottest. Uh, sought-after degrees in the market, and now that you have online, so basically with the affordable tuition, with the excellent academics that you have, uh, are are definitely interesting for people to actually look at from anywhere in the country around the world, right, to to be able to- Absolutely,
1: yep. A lot of our international students come to major in nursing and business specifically so they can go back home and help their communities. Uh, You know, we have students from areas that need those kinds of resources and we're, we're proud to be able to do that, while at the same time, you know, providing career opportunities and education for our own regional students right here in Iowa, which is probably our highest priority, is to make sure that we're serving the students in Iowa right now. Um, to be able to do that. And we're also part of our new initiatives and in our strategic plan. Um, you mentioned they're very career focused. Our top, our top uh, degrees right now are probably business, nursing, teacher education. Um, agribusiness is a brand new one that doesn't really exist in very many colleges in the country. Uh, it's, a, it's under our business program but with a focus on agriculture. So those students are learning about soil science, seed science, um, agronomy. They can then go work for, let's say, a bank that does farming loans, and they can speak the language of the farmers. Or they can go work in the business office of a hog farm or a seed company. And we found with our local farm businesses this was a high-need area. And we looked into it and found there, there are certainly um, one of the, probably one of the country's top agriculture programs really in the country would be the Iowa State. But we looked into it and realized there weren't a lot of programs focused on the business side of agriculture. And that's what our local employers asked for. Um, and so we expect that to be one of our rapidly growing programs here as well. Dr.
2: Pankaj, it's been a pleasure.
1: Been wonderful to meet you. I love talking about Iowa Wesleyan, as you can tell. Um, enjoyed our conversation very much.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it.
2: You're welcome. Likewise. Uh, if you don't mind, we'll take this. Up.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on Plexus, you can visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. That's P-L-E-X-U-S-S dot com forward slash solutions. Or you can email us at podcast at plexus.com.